Well, we're still stuck at home, and we don't know when we'll get to come out. But more than ever, imagining the future is key to creating it. So I hope you'll join me on the adventure to a better world. Today I'm thrilled to share the story of Tiffany Ashley Bell, founder and executive director of The Human Utility. Tiffany is a 2017 Technology and Democracy Fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, a 2014 Code for America Fellow, and certainly the most visionary technologist I know. Tiffany, I know it's a messy time with a big impact on your mission. Thank you for taking the time with me to explore the work of building the future. No, thank you for talking to me about it and always supporting. So thanks for having me. So why don't we start with something simple here. Get everyone up to speed. What is the elevator pitch for the human utility? So essentially, the human utility is an organization that brings people together who, in the United States, can't afford their water bills um, with people who can afford to help. And we essentially help those people get their water bills paid to get them either turned back on or prevent them from being shut off. Because it's a little bit more, um, in the United States, we have many, many cities and water systems where when you can't afford your water bill, instead of helping you in some, some useful way, they will just turn your water off when you don't pay. And, you know, that has a lot of just secondary effects on people and their quality of life. And so in order to help people avoid some of those issues, again, we connect people, um, donors who want to donate to people who need the donations to help them. And over time, we've been operating now going into our sixth year, sixth year we've helped over 3,000 people. A good number of those were kids and um, getting their water either turned back on or preventing it from being shut off in the first place. And we do that in um, Baltimore and nearly 30 different cities in Michigan. So walk me through what happens when someone loses their water access? Why, why is this a big deal for the families you're helping? It's a traumatic sort of thing, um, just, just starting with just the concept of not being able to afford to pay your bills in the first place and the kind of shame that society likes to heap upon people when that happens, especially men. Um, we find that men tend to be very uncomfortable asking us for help because there's that concept that men are supposed to be able to provide for their families and whatnot. Um, but, you know, it's a, it's a very shameful experience that people have, and often it's through no fault of their own. So someone, for example, might lose their job, and, you know, they were already perhaps in a precarious financial position, so, you know, they can't pay certain bills, and they start triaging as far as, you know, they pay their rent or their mortgage, pay for food and transportation. And then after that, you know, certain bills like the utility bills go. And so, you know, this water gets shut off. Next thing you know, you can't take a shower, you can't bathe, you can't do laundry at your own house and conditions start going downhill really quick after that. So, you know, you'll have grown men bathing with bottles of water. You'll have senior citizens, for example, who you know, will dig a hole in their backyard and defecate in plastic bags in their backyard. And, um, you know, that's how they will have to live until they get their water turned back on. So this can shatter people's families altogether if they can't stay ahead of their water bill. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, because essentially like the, the U.S. Um, Department of Health and Human Services has a whole like guidebook on uh, child welfare situations. And when you have a house that does not have basic utilities, especially electricity and water, that house is basically thought of as unfit for habitation. And if you have a child in a house like that, they are considered neglected um, from a legal perspective. So even if they never end up going to school dirty or hungry, they're still considered legally neglected. And if someone finds out you have a child in a situation like that, they can come and take your child and put them in foster care. And we literally have had people where that's happened to them either, you know, they had guardianship of a grandchild or something, or it was their own actual child where someone told or just something happened where they were perhaps being looked at anyway. And, you know, the water got shut off. And next thing you know, the child is being put in foster care. And, you know, there's, there's other things too, like, you know, you losing your house because 
it's just crazy. Like the other side of it is that, you know, if you don't pay your water bill in a lot of places that gets added to your property taxes. And if you don't pay those, then that house can be sold from under you, even if the house itself is paid off. And so that, you know, contributes to homelessness and the destruction of neighborhoods. And this often happens more often than not to black and brown people. So there's there's racial inequity baked into this. Yes. And you take this small, is it a small bill generally that just gets out of hand or are water bills very expensive in the markets you've been serving? Well, in a lot of places like Detroit, for example, I think the average bill is somewhere around a hundred bucks a month. Oh, wow. So that, that's more than cable. Exactly. It's totally more than cable. Um, and for a lot of people who are, you know, living on fixed incomes, for example, which we all are in a way, but like, you know, it's just levels of magnitude. Um, for someone who, for example, is getting a social security disability, sometimes those checks are no more than seven or $800 a month. And if you're looking at someone owing a hundred bucks, that's the seventh of their, you know, monthly income that they're having to dedicate to the water bills. And so what happens is that sometimes, you know, people just end up falling behind because they've had to, you know, something has happened money wise, for example, like a child gets sick or they get into a car accident and need to pay expenses around that, um, you know, they lose their job and they can't um, pay their bills in a way that they previously were able to. And so, you know, just it, everything spirals. And one of our uh, previous uh, donors would call it a cascade where right. it's just a cascade of things happening one thing after another. And next thing you know, you have this $500 debt that you owe the water department that no matter what you do, you cannot pay back after a certain point without someone else's help. And so that's where the human utility and its donors come in. So I think a lot of people would look at this problem and be reasonably horrified that it's possible for something like this to happen to people, for it to happen to one person, much less for it to happen to thousands of people. And they would shake their head and shrug their shoulders and kind of just move on with their day from there. And that is not what you did. You looked at the situation and decided, well, maybe I can help. How did you get started helping with this situation? Well, at the time, I was um, a consultant in the city of Atlanta in a position where I had... Um, access to all the all the cabinet level members of the mayor's administration we got to shadow the mayor and things like that and the point of that consulting uh engagement was to help them figure out ways to use a piece of technology to improve uh service delivery for their citizens but you know that whole engagement kind of moved slow in different ways so i had a lot of free time on my hands but at the same time i was definitely seeing you know the cliche how the sausage was made and so, you know, seeing a lot of how those decisions came together, I read um, one morning, um, the summer of 2014, about what was happening in Detroit. And based off of everything that I had learned from shadowing people in Atlanta and talking to folks, it kind of made me wonder, you know, what decisions had to be made in Detroit for them to, um, you know, decide to turn off the water of people that you know, in visiting some of them, they don't have anything. It's not as if they're taking their money and going shopping and just being irresponsible. They literally don't have anything. And so, you know, I read this article that basically said, it's an article that was in the Atlantic, and it talked about how 100,000 people were about to have to have their water shut off, mostly because they couldn't afford it. And so I just started tweeting about it, which is what I always do when I find something to be sort of ridiculous. Um, but my co-founder at the time, Christy Tillman and I, we figured, you know, what if we could pay the bills of people who, you know, we knew the stories of. So with some more digging, I found a PDF on the water company's website at the time that it was 400 pages worth of accounts of people who they supposedly couldn't deliver the bills to through the mail. So for some reason, they put them in this list and posted it to the website. So they're publicly shaming people whose water accounts are in arrears for some reason. Yes. And the only thing, so the deal was they didn't have names in okay. the, the file. So it wasn't quite shaming, but it was just there for some reason. 
But what was there was, of course, what they owed, but then also their account numbers. And the way that the website for the utility in Detroit worked at the time was that if you took one of those account numbers and plug it into the website, you could just access someone's account information without a password, a username, or anything. And so, um, but also the way they were structured, they didn't actually have names attached to most of the account. It just was like listed as resident and that's it. Um, but you could see their full consumption history, their billing and payment history, but also what was there was a make a payment button. And so I thought to myself, well, you know, forget this PDF. We don't know the stories of any of these people, but what if we put up a website to find people where we knew what was going on with them and connected them to people and said, if you want to help donate and pay this person's water bill, we'll give you this person's account information. You can just log in as if you're them pay whatever you want to pay and then send us the receipt for having done so. And, you know, that's how we got started. So, so, so that worked? Yes. So in the first, like, 30 days of us doing that, we had paid $100,000 in water bills for people. There was no goal. It was just, we didn't even expect it to work, actually. Um, but, you know. In that you didn't expect people to care? Well, not to care, but just it's, a, it's sort of a weird thing to pay someone else's water bill. So we didn't expect people to actually jump up and do it but you know people did it and you know they realized it was a need and again you know i was living in california and i didn't have a water bill um and so i didn't understand any of the things i understand now about like how important this is and how you know um i'll just say long story short i was taking it for granted until i read about this myself and so i i kind of thought other people would just think of it that way but no, people piled in and totally like wanted to give. So now keeping this accessible for the layperson, you talk about seeing a problem and seeing that maybe you could solve it through technology. Can you tell me a little bit about how complex the technology was that you started with to try to solve this problem? <laughs> I mean, so that's that's the beauty of what we did to start off with. It wasn't complex at all. Like, it literally was a website that was hosted on Heroku, which is like a, a web hosting service. Um, and it was designed with some ready-made user interface design templates. And all we did was just put together, you know, just some of the, the copy describing the problem. Here's how you can help. And there was no actual backend, so the website was designed to look like a form that actually went to a database, but everything actually just filtered into a Google spreadsheet that we used as the database initially. And so <laughs> even when somebody applied, they applied through a Google form, and everything was managed that way. Because, you know, Christy and I at the time had full-time jobs and didn't have any way or, or time to build some overly complicated thing. We didn't even initially take money you know, at the beginning. So that's, we had to put everything together really quick using existing tools and it wasn't complicated. So you weren't even taking money. You were essentially giving people what account numbers and instructing them to go and plug the account number in and pay the bill. Yep. So when you, you know, would, um, when you would sign up to or pledge your amount, we would send you an email with instructions and then the account number and, you know, that's literally all it took at that point to help people. So. Wow. So you, you start off with something straightforward. You build this thing super lean just to see, like, because, again, you don't know at the start how well people are going to respond to this call to action. You don't know if people who are in need are going to feel comfortable accepting the help. But... As you said, like you, you got a hundred thousand dollars of bills paid in the first month. How did you evolve from there? So the um, the consulting engagement that I had with Atlanta was only for a year, and so toward the end of that, I kind of needed to figure out what to do after that. Um, and I, I had intentions of going and doing something totally different, but I ended up seeing that, you know, the demand for what we were doing was still very great. 
And as I learn more about the problem, I realize like this is not a thing that's going to stop. People are not going to stop applying for help. And of course, then people are not going to stop giving either. And so, um, you know, and it's kind of one of those things where like fate lines up in terms of something that you clearly should be doing because the same weekend that that consulting engagement ended, we ended up getting a grant for $100,000 from um, a funding organization called Y Combinator. And they have funded companies like Stripe, Airbnb, Dropbox, Instacart, companies like that. But they also give grants to nonprofits that have some kind of technology um, angle to them. And so that lined up perfectly. And so that allowed me to go full time and do this work full time. And that was at the end of 2014 that we got that funding. And I've been doing this full time ever since. And so what was it like going into a community like Y Combinator, where I'm guessing the bulk of your peers were engaged in trying to make money, trying to raise money to make money to ultimately build an engine to get rich on one side. And here you are not trying to get rich off of any of this. How did you fit in with that culture? (laughs) Um, For a number of reasons, I did not fit in. Um, But I tried to at least learn a number of different things uh, as part of that program. And one of which, you know, was... Regardless of whether you're a for-profit or a non-profit, they want you to have, you know, as much of a focus on metrics as you possibly can. So, you know, I, I adopted certain software to, to help us better keep track of how much money we're raising and, you know, um, you know, and the impact that that has on people. Um, thinking about different, uh, one of the other things they emphasize, of course, is growth. And that's not always good, but, you know, in our case, it was important as far as growing um, our donation volume to be able to help more and more people and to be taken more seriously by certain people. Um, and that was definitely, there were techniques that I definitely learned during that program that helped us out. And so, you know, um, I previously had a for-profit startup background. Um, and so there were a lot of things that were not totally unfamiliar to me. So it wasn't like I went in there and had no clue what I was getting into. Um, but yeah, I just tried to take what I could from the program and, and apply it as best it possibly could be applied to what we were doing. Talk a little bit more about raising money, because I have seen you talk about how challenging it is for a nonprofit to raise money and the kinds of hoops that you have to jump through in order to continue solving the problem that you're solving. Can you walk me through the basics of those hoops? The concept of fundraising itself is a problem that you're trying to solve alongside the actual issue that you're working on. And so with me previously, I worked at a nonprofit for barely a year um, before I started this, but there was no insight, no special insight I had into how that nonprofit really operated. So I didn't know what I was doing as far or what to expect as far as fundraising goes. Um, And so you know, when I would approach foundations, you realize there's a whole process for quote unquote approaching a foundation that in itself is bureaucratic. So, you know, um, foundations are sitting on billions of dollars in assets to give to nonprofits and different causes. But one of the things that you have to do, for example, is you have to, to write what's called an LOI if you want to apply for a grant. So this LOI is, it's called a letter of intent. So it basically is a letter that you send to tell them that you want to propose um, to ask them for a grant. (laughs) So this is like Victorian courtship. Yes. And so if you don't send this LOI, then you can't even actually, you know, send them a full proposal for a grant. But of, of course, first they have to say in response to your LOI, yes, we want to hear more. Um, and if they don't respond, then you've wasted time writing a letter at least, but that's, you know, how a lot of, foundations work and that's regardless of how much money you're asking them for so a foundation that is giving you ten thousand dollars could make you jump through some of the same hoops that a foundation that wants to give you a million dollars could make you jump through and you know in a lot of cases i've actually not taken foundation money because of stuff like that where you know especially early on when i was still trying to get the hang of things and didn't have a lot of time 
to do things like write 20 page proposals for $10,000. Like I just ended up saying this process doesn't work. Thank you for your consideration, but I actually can't do this. And in that case, that was a foundation that reached out to us. So even if they reach out to you, they still will have you jump through these crazy hoops. Um, and that's just foundations. And so some nonprofits are, are funded with a, a total mix of different funding sources. So some nonprofits are funded, you know, from government grants and they have their own sort of requirements and hoops to jump through. And, you know, we don't have any of that kind of funding, so I can't speak fully intelligently to that. Um, but the other side of it is in addition to foundations, there's money from individual donors. And so that will be your high net worth philanthropists. Um, and a lot of that is relationship driven. And so if you're not in certain circles, you don't have access to those people and their money, even if you're running an organization that's totally deserving of it. If you don't know somebody that knows somebody that knows a super wealthy person who can write you a check for a million dollars and not blink, you're cut off from that sort of funding. Um, and even if you do know people like that, because the nonprofit sector, a lot of people operate on sort of a scarcity mindset even though to me there's trillions of dollars on earth so you shouldn't have to think that way, a lot of people still do. So they'll, you know, find reasons to not make intros to people for you. And so a lot of it, again, is driven based on relationships and your usual human biases around money and who should have access to it and who shouldn't. Um, and, you know, it gets to be a sort of a weird thing. But going back to foundations even, like I'm a, a black woman who does not come from money who is not connected to a lot of people um in the sense of oh yeah i can just call so and so and they'll make a phone call for me and actually get someone to donate so in the moments where i have uh tried to fundraise from foundations it mostly has not gone well and i think some of that comes down to just like basic biases that people have in the nonprofit sector um because like most philanthropic organizations you'll get in front of are run by white people it's a white person's money that's being distributed. And if we're being completely honest, most nonprofits are run by white people um, and they are funded by white people in a, lot of, in a lot of cases when it comes to like foundation money. And a lot of them are used to writing grants to each other to serve people that look like you and I, black and brown people. And so, you know, when I come sitting in front of them asking for some amount of money, they're kind of like, well, who are you? And you know, there's a certain sort of weirdness and awkwardness that happens. And I think some of it comes from like not being used to having to write grants to people of color. And I forget exactly what the stats are, but most um, nonprofits do not have a person of color at the helm. I think the number is like less than 10% of nonprofits have a person of color running them. And that number is even smaller when, you come, when, you, when you're talking about extraordinarily well-funded nonprofits. So, you know, that's the thing. But, and that's, you know, that's a long way of saying that's why I really lean on everyday individuals to fund the work that we do. Because I think that, uh, you know, I get better traction that way and people really understand that, you know, they, they have their personal stories for why this work is relevant to them and why they want to give, and they're very disinclined to make me jump through hoops for a donation. So it works out better that way. And I actually prefer that versus having, you know, a foundation or, you know, one ultra high net worth person funding everything because, you know, it's the case for a lot of nonprofits. Like what I'm seeing just on message boards now in the middle of this impending financial crisis where, if you have one foundation that suddenly has to pull the plug on you, your mission is in jeopardy. Whereas if you have thousands of smaller dollar donations, you're better able to A, predict what you're going to have in six months. And your mission is protected because there's no one person that can pull the plug on you and jeopardize what you're doing. So, and I actually, you know, this reminds me of a conversation I had back in 2015 with an investor who does a lot of, um, nonprofit giving, he told me, he's like, you know, foundations and other entities are not going to be your best source of money. So don't even make budgets on the basis of getting their grants, like cultivate individuals and build a monthly giving program. And that's what I've tried to do. So 
so you're an outsider in both the universes of people in tech trying to make themselves rich. You're an outsider in the universe of nonprofits and their administrators. And in any case, you found a way to make this work through the pursuit of individual small dollar donations. Why do you think that you have been able to be successful in cultivating those donors? I think part of it, um, I've been a very visible person in my career. Um, just because like being a black woman in tech and then like having a following from talking about my career and things like that. I think people have appreciated that and especially the transparency I've had around like certain struggles I've had. And then they've seen me, a lot of people have been following me for years and the work that I've done in different ways. And like, they want to support that. But I think, you know, other people, they just want to have something that they're a part of that's meaningful that they can actually relate to on some levels because a lot of our donors are people that are actually in tech. And so these are people that go to work every day at tech companies and they see the same tech that they use at work being used for another purpose that, you know, they can relate to as far as, oh yeah, you know, I use that programming language to do this and you've built this thing that uses it for some other purpose and that's great. Um, and again, there's, there's a ton of reasons. So we actually ask people on the donation form why they give. And so, you know, a lot of it has to just do with, I think that what's happening with people and, you know, their water being shut off is completely wrong. And my way of fixing that is donating. Or some people it's as simple as, I used to date a guy from Detroit and I want to give because of that. And so, you know, there's a bunch of reasons. But I think at the end of the day, like, we've given people a way to be a part of fixing an issue that shouldn't be an issue in the first place. So you've had some conversations with high net worth individuals and how have their inclinations toward giving been the same or different from the, I don't know, everyday folks who are part of your regular giving? Well, I mean, for some of them, they have not always been wealthy and so those are the people that I've found, even though they're, you know, high net worth individuals now, they are more generous with us than some other people have been. Um, other people who are high net worth individuals, like investors, venture capitalists, for example, they know that, you know, there are people just like them who are becoming wealthy off things that are perhaps not as good for society. And so they want to be able to, to dedicate some of their uh, largesse toward things that actually are good for society. Um, other people, you know, it just, it comes down to a lot of, a lot of high network donors I've noticed, um, and this is everybody, but I think for certain people, it's, it's more common and more important to them. They seem to latch on to causes that are like the cause du jour, um, where I've seen a lot of people who I don't think have ever really donated to charity before in any concerted way really jump on this coronavirus situation, for example. Um, there's a certain person who's given a large amount of money recently that I've noticed over time, he really tends to give toward whatever cause is in the news that's really a big deal. But you don't really see his philanthropy otherwise. And I think for some people that's driving them. And that's, you know, I have my opinions about that. But um, as long as people give, that's a good thing. Even if it's not to us, if you're contributing in some way or another, that's a good thing. I'm not one of these people like if you didn't give to us, you know, you're terrible. But, you know, I think people should um, look for something to give to if they have the ability to. And, you know. Obviously, you're happy to be a recipient if they are so moved. <laughs> of course, of course. So we're talking about small dollar donations. We're talking about what is in the scheme of things very small bills. We're talking about $100 here, $100 there, and it starts to pile up. And now it's, you know, maybe $1,000. But in the grand scheme of things, these are not large amounts of money relative to the money awash in our economy and our culture. But there are longer term effects and there are larger scale costs involved to people losing their water. 
yeah, there are longer term effects to people losing their water, and it's it's one of those things where I don't think that I I think that part of the problem is that our society in the United States is is so geared toward rugged individualism that when someone you know is not able to pay their bills instead of lifting them up we seek to punish them basically and this if you think about it is actually pretty punitive you lose your job and within three months when your money runs out you've also lost the ability to shower that's quite a gun to your head yeah it is it is basically and what has happened is if you think about it we have made it where your ability to just do basic things like in you know maintain your dignity as a human being as far as being clean and whatnot is predicated on basically what you contribute to society and you know even if i mean we literally have like cancer patients who are undergoing chemo and cannot work but the utility has turned their water off because fundamentally they're not working even if they were working six months ago and were fine they still get turned off. Like, there was a woman we had in Detroit where this happened. She happened to be the breadwinner for her family. She gets stricken with breast cancer, and next thing you know, she can't work, and the family's water is being turned off until, of course, they they found us. But that's what's happening. We don't... Our, our safety net in this country is not such that, you know, you are a person who has been contributing... And even whether you're a citizen or not, if you've been paying taxes and contributing in some way or another, you, you know, you're entitled, in my opinion, to being looked after if something happens to you, you know. And unfortunately, the way that things are designed, that's not what happen, happens. And so, you know, you lose your job, you can't pay your bills for five or six months, everything piles up. Next thing you know, somebody pulls up in a truck outside, turns your water off. I mean, I've literally talked to people where they said someone pulled up, they were brushing their teeth, and someone pulled up to turn their water off, you know. And, wow. you know, we don't look after people in ways that are, you know, uplifting and helping them maintain their dignity until they get back into a situation where they can help themselves. And so this is what happens. And, you know, again, people lose their kids, and that in itself has a long-term effect on someone who doesn't even have anything really to do with the situation. Like, you know, thinking about the woman before with her granddaughter that was taken away. Her granddaughter was six. She has no concept of a water bill. But she was put in foster care over this. And now she's going to possibly have to deal with issues around separation anxiety for the rest of her life. Because she was conscious of the fact that she was taken away from her grandmother for some reason that she had no concept of. Does this even make sense financially for the state? Like, what does it cost to foster somebody versus just paying their damn water bill? It's it's an expense that doesn't make sense. Um, so it you know it varies depending on the age of the child and situation you know special uh, situations they might be in or whatever. But let's just say for mathematical sake, for easy math, you know, for a six year old foster family gets $500 a month to take care of that child, whereas her grandmother owed $700, or she needed $700 to pay the water bill. So within a few months, now we've wasted all kinds of money for a very preventable issue. Yes, yes. And it's, it's just mathematically doesn't make sense. And so it actually, and this is kind of the argument that I, I want to be able to make in the future, is like it actually costs more money to not support something like what we're doing versus you know what it costs to you know fund us for example because again that child was in foster care i think for at least six months and so that easy map three thousand dollars versus just paying seven hundred dollars in addition to the trauma she experienced during that so and then you're also dragging down the the tax base of cities because i imagine if a property uh, is marked as being uninhabitable because it has lost its water. That has to have a longer-term impact when you have it in aggregate, right? Like, this can't be good for the cities and states that are doing this to people. Uh, it, it has to come out of their own money eventually, right? Yeah, it does, because you'll see situations like, you know, where houses become blighted 
people move out and abandon them and the neighborhood goes down that may not have been in bad shape 10, 15 years ago or whatever. And it's not a good thing, you know. So this is this is a small hail stone that snowballs into something that has enormous individual effects, enormous effects on family, and eventually in the aggregate drags down how the value of, of neighborhoods and, and entire territories are seen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think about just a real quick example. Before we got started, a woman in Baltimore um, lost the house that she had grown up in that had been in her family for 30, 40 years. It was totally paid off, but she lost this house over a $365 water bill. And just imagine the family context that is lost from that neighborhood when that happened. And so in that case, you know, some real estate speculator bought that from the city and that's who owned the house at that point. Um, and now fortunately Baltimore stopped that practice but it happens still in a, a bunch of other places. And so, but yeah, it just destroys the character of families and of neighborhoods for no real necessary reason. So, so in, in the sense of civic negligence, we're all looking the other way while social fabric is being torched. And it, it just doesn't seem like we've got the money for so many other things. Mm -hmm. How did water get so expensive for people? Well, one of the things that, you know, as a country, um, I was reading over just like the president's budget on uh, one of the government websites last night. And we invest a lot of money in things that I'm not going to say we don't need to, but that there are questions as far as the need for the magnitude of funding. And so we will invest a ton of money in the military, which I don't always say is a bad thing because my I'm I myself am a military brat so I understand the net the need for national defense but I don't think that you should be funding tons of things for the military but you're neglecting things like educational expenses or you're neglecting to invest in you know certain services that people need as far as like workforce development and things like that and so that's kind of what this country has done we systematically over time have stopped investing in infrastructure, for example. Um, when it comes to water, our water infrastructure, the, the peak levels of it sort of peaked in the 70s. And so since then, you know, the federal government has just kind of said, you know, we think states should be responsible for this and they've not invested the money that they should. Um, but they do this all while imposing all of these requirements, you know, these ever sort of more stringent requirements as far as clean water and things like that without providing any funding for public water systems to be able to accommodate those requirements. And so what's happened is that public utilities have had to keep raising rates to fund, you know, their own infrastructure improvements and expansions and maintenance and things like that. And they do this again through rate increases. But the problem is that every city has a, a, a contingent of people that can't afford to sustain those rate increases year after year. Like in Detroit, you know, they've raised it every summer for the last 10 summers. Um, and a lot of utilities don't take into account, again, that there are people that can't sustain those rate increases. And that's where the, you know, that's where the expense comes in. These utilities are not getting federal funding that they used to. And, you know, I have, had my complaints and you know whatnot about the the way that Detroit has handled water shutoffs. But I actually did get to sit in the office of the person who directs the water company in Detroit and listen to his perspective. And part of what I don't feel sympathy for him in terms of oh you know I feel so bad for him, but I can understand that perspective that he's not getting resources that he needs either. And so everyone's forced... in an impossible position. Yes, yes, and so you know. Part of the situation is that organizations like us come in and fill the gap, but it also needs to be that the federal government needs to reprioritize where it's allocating money. And infrastructure should definitely be one of those things. And yes, there are infrastructure bills now that have come out, but they still don't fund things at the level that's needed. So, so when you're looking at communities in Michigan, we're talking about a decline in federal funding for infrastructure since the 70s. And we're looking at a decline in those communities' industrial bases, which is where conceivably you might get some additional resources to pay for some of this stuff. 
as you're looking at the communities that you are serving with human utility, what kind of commonalities exist between them uh, in terms of the other things that they've lost uh, in addition to infrastructure funding? I mean, jobs. Jobs is, you know, always the, the volatile situation. Um, Baltimore and Detroit and a lot of cities in Michigan all have that same situation where the, the job base is not there for people. And, you know, like Detroit, of course, is known for the auto industry. But a lot of those jobs are being sh- or have been shipped elsewhere or are being shipped elsewhere. Or, you know, if you have companies like Ford, for example, talking about hiring people, they are not talking about hiring for the same jobs that we were talking about hiring for 50 years ago. So these are often very high-skilled office, you know, jobs that leave out the people that we serve who are more hands-on, manufacturing-oriented people. And, you know, again, I talk about, like, the failure... Um, to invest in like workforce development, these people have also not been offered any sort of retooling training. So they've got a skill that, you know, is kind of obsolete. And so even if they've been in this industry, in the auto industry for two or three decades, that skill is not relevant if this company is only hiring people to work on autonomous vehicles and things of that sort. And so, you know, those people are employable obviously but their jobs that they need are not there and that's a common thing i'm seeing in a lot of places where and and again people want to work nobody wants to be dependent on an organization like ours you know even though there's a narrative that oh people just want to hand out or whatever you know and yes there's always going to be people when you're helping with money that will try to get over but the vast majority of people want to be able to support themselves but they are not in a position to be able to to do that because the jobs that they're skilled for don't exist anymore. And it's not as easy to just pick up and move somewhere else either, you know, and so they're kind of in a situation where they can't do anything. And so this is what results. So I've been, you know, getting paid to write code in some form or another for the last decade. And I've met a bunch of people working in technology and all of the problems they're trying to solve, maybe the scope is big because they can find a lot of customers, but uh, you know, at the end of the day, they're building robots to print them money for really narrow specific things. And when I look at you, of all the people I've met, I don't think I've met anybody who is working on a bigger problem to be solved with technology. Uh, and despite this, I know that you've lamented to me in the past that you get unsolicited feedback uh, about your career direction. And so I would, I'd love to know, like, what have you heard from people about how you should be applying the skills that you've developed here? And do you agree with those points of view? <laughs> um, you know, I have... I, I have I've heard people tell me that, I mean, I literally had someone that I ran into in the dollar store in Berkeley before I left California um, that told me that what I was doing with water, quote unquote, was cute, but you should be running a for-profit of some sort with the skills and the network that you have. And I've heard that multiple times. And I think- So so this keeps happening. (laughs) Yes. I think that, you know, people, when they say that, they think it's a compliment, but it's not. Like, I... It's so insulting. Well, it's not insulting. It's just, I think it, it they make what I do more about what they would like for me to see. And I've never been a fan of people that do that because I feel like everybody... <laughs> even if, whether we're talking about my career or somebody else's, I've never been a fan of people that try to tell other people what they should be doing for a living. Because I'm like, if a person has chosen a certain path, they've done that for a reason that they don't always... It isn't always known to you. But if it makes them happy, like, mind your business. And so, (laughs) like, you know, I've heard that from multiple people. And, you know, I don't think of it as a compliment. Because to me, maybe it's a slight arrogance. I'm like, I feel like the ability to work at all these other tech companies will always kind of be there for me in some shape or form. Like, yes, there's age discrimination and sexism and racism and stuff like that. But I feel like if I had to drop everything tomorrow, 
I could probably do fine working at any other tech company in a for-profit basis, but I feel like this is something that needs to be worked on now. And while I have the energy and the brain power still and the desire, I'm going to do this now. And I don't care if you think I should be running a for-profit venture because this person also was an investor. And so the subtext was you should be making me some money. Like, <laughs> Why aren't you useful to me, Tiffany? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I that's that's what the subtext was. And I just Who are these other people benefiting from your labor when it should be me? Exactly. You know, so I just I don't I don't agree with it. I, I can see where they're coming from, but I don't agree with it. So it, it, it feels almost like a failure of imagination because we have, I think, among a lot of our peers in the broader technology industry, a very narrow point of view about what is a problem worth solving? Mm -hmm. And I would love to know why you feel that this problem is worth solving and, and that's obvious to you. Why you think that's hard for other people to grasp? I think um, it's a failure of education and not like in the book sense, but it's a, they don't really they don't have a sense, at least before I get to them, like the implications of what not having water, what that means for someone's life. Like we've talked about it all up and down this podcast, but the average person doesn't know how terrible that situation can be. And I, I can empathize because I didn't know either before I got started that people even had their water shut off. You know, I didn't, you know, I've never paid a water bill explicitly in my life prior to this and still don't. I mean, it's included in my rent. And so I think the average person doesn't really understand that this is a thing that people don't have. We take it for granted. I mean, you go in a place, you flush the toilet, you walk away. You don't think about the fact that, you know, or I hope you flush the toilet and wash your hands. But like, you know, the average person doesn't think about the fact that there is a whole process and a whole system behind that. And that there are people in this country right now who can't do that. And it's because of no reason other than not having the money. Um, and I don't think people really understand that there are still a number of really foundational things that a lot of people take for granted that other people don't have. And so they can't process why this would be a thing um, and why it would be important to work on. But again, you know, there's all these things that happen to people when this isn't a thing that they have. And so I think that that's worth working on because it doesn't have to work that way. I think if I recall correctly, like France Water is a human right that I think is a part of their constitution. I have to check that again. But it's definitely been declared a human right in a lot of places. Um, so it doesn't have to be this way. And so. And, and then ironically, you've got, you know, companies like Nestle <laughs> coming out of France, clawing everyone else's water supplies in the most colonial fashion. Exactly. Especially like even in Michigan, where they paid basically no money for a permit and just pump them like you wouldn't believe for water. That actually brings me to my next question. I, I know you're heading back to school. Congratulations. You just got into... Got into Stanford, the Graduate School of Business there. I've, I've heard of that place. Uh, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Why, why study business? What are you hoping you can get out of that for your work? Well, I think that at the end of the day, what we do is basically allocating money in a higher way than it, what it might be allocated otherwise. And there are some skills around that that I don't have that I think, I don't want to say is hampered our effectiveness, but I personally feel that way, that if I knew, you know, better fund management principles, we could do certain things more efficiently, like, you know, turning $1 into X amount of dollars just based off of, you know, certain things. Like when you donate, Every single dollar is not paid out right away. And that's, you know, because we have application processes and reserves and things like that for different purposes. Um, but I think that there's things that could be done around that that I have no concept of from a financial perspective. Um, but then also, and that's not to say like, you know, bad things are happening. It's just that the money is sitting until it's needed, basically. Um, so, so you feel like there's a missed opportunity there that if you could identify the levers better. Yes, Yes, exactly. And so the other side of that is just also like, I've been an entrepreneur for most of my career, and I've not had some of the same management experiences that other people have. And I think that that's also been a problem in certain instances, like with bad hires sometimes that have wasted time and energy. Um, and then also just like, 
being able to manage certain people and take and set expectations. I've not always been the best at that because I've had such a unorthodox work history. And I think it's it would be useful to um, get some management training on that. But then also, again, like a lot of the work that we're doing is veering totally into public policy. And one of the things I've been studying before school starts at this point, which won't be for a while now, but like I've been studying just like, you know, certain programs under President Obama's administration, that there was a strong emphasis on them being evidence-based programs as far as measuring their successes and their impacts. And some of that comes from being able to do things like do cost-benefit analyses as far as like, okay, if we had this, you know, evidence-based home nursing program, how much benefit did this actually provide? and I've not been able to do that with my own work. And I think that that's also been a problem, um, especially as far as me really being able to get in people's faces and really like bang the drum and say, if you give us a dollar, it turns into 10 as far as benefit. You know, I've not been able to make arguments like that with actual numbers. Um, and I think that for our work and future things I want to work on, having that kind of background is really important. And so. The coin of the realm at this point is that you have to be able to make your arguments in terms of dollars. And while I think there's a lot about that that's deeply frustrating in a lot of spaces, you've got a really fortuitous position in that it's it's a utility. It's about spending money. So <laughs> it's a really straightforward thing. If you're pissing money away over here to try to save money over there and it doesn't balance out it's a really straightforward thing whether or not that's a good idea. You can show that with numbers, but it's it's a matter of developing the visibility into the policyscape to understand where all those numbers are. When it comes to politics, there's always going to be people issues um, because that's one thing I've totally run into where people are, are very much like, who do you think you are and who are you? Um, but at the end of the day, there's still the business case that you need to make for certain policies. And I think that if we can do that, that's one very strong piece of making this a non-issue for millions of families that experience it. And being able to show that, you know, if you stop shutting people's water off, you actually save taxpayers all this money that you claim certain people are wasting. (laughs) You know, if we think about... Which is the whole point. Exactly. You know, and, and... we like to, to, as a country, spin this narrative that, oh, you know, this program is a drain, this program is wasteful, you know, but there are certain policies that we have that are wasteful, but nobody's taking the time to really sit down and say, this shutoff policy is actually costing the state money way over here that, you know, you guys want to, like, be able to invest in schools better, but, you know, you're pissing away, like you said, $10 every second or whatever the quantification is, every second that a child is in foster care. So if you stop doing that, you can make better that fund. make sense. Right, right. You know, so there's that. And I really like, because I'm an engineer, fundamentally by training, I want to be able to make those kinds of arguments because I want to just be able to slap the numbers in front of people and say, I dare you to not support this. Even though, of course, people will. But, you know, I'll feel better as far as having made the strongest possible argument Here's the people side of it, but also I want you to argue with these numbers and see what people do. So. You, you want them to be obviously wrong in addition to morally wrong, right? Yes, yes, you know. So I I think from hearing you talk about this, you don't want to have to do this forever because you would love if the, the government just put you out of a job by cutting this shit out, right? Yeah. Do you have a vision for what you think a just and equitable water policy would be? So I think it would come partially from a national level where there is a national right to water law, just like there are other entitlements. Like I think literally water and certain other utilities should just straight up be entitlements at this point, because to me, they are the basis of of civilized, dignified existence. And so there would be a national right to water affordability law that would be properly funded by, you know, in entitlement funding every year that Congress has authorized through a certain point in time. Um, and it would sort of perhaps take the, the, it would sort of be like a block grant for states then, where if a state wants to do something to ensure that all of its citizens have water, 
they can tap into this fund from the federal government either to make infrastructure changes and updates and or to run, you know, an assistance program or to be able to provide like income index rates to people. Um, and just there's different approaches and whatever states want to do, as long as the end result is everybody has running water. And I don't even think it should be limited to citizens. It just be, I mean, uh, yeah, citizens. If you live in the United States and pay rent or a mortgage here, you should be entitled to access this. And again, there's different approaches, but I think it has to start from the federal government allocating proper amounts of money to do this for states. So you looked at the situation. You said that a, this is bullshit, and B, maybe I can solve it. And you took a stab, and you've been able to make change for, you say, over 3,000 families. Is that right? 3,000 people. Yep. 3,000 people. So what advice do you have for people who see injustice in the world, but they don't know what to do with it? They don't know how to make a start of it. I mean, you should try to do like we did, like just start with something small as far as your quote-unquote solution to the problem and like go from there and you don't have to build some really fancy website or you know immediately start trying to change policy and things of that sort unless that's what you want to do but I think that there are a lot of problems that if you did something small it could turn into a bigger thing that has a larger impact but you have to kind of learn the lay of the land first um and I think it, that's a, a big thing. Start small and get some success under your belt and then go from there. Now, obviously, if you're listening and you are moved by the impact of this work, um, Tiffany, where should people go to donate to contribute? So you should go to humanutility.org to donate. And, you know, we have a a monthly giving program that if you feel comfortable and you yourself are still stable, I would, you know, implore you to do that and to give that way that, you know, part of your donation would help us become self-sustaining. Um, but it would also mostly go to people that need the help. And, you know, you would be contributing to ensuring people can take a shower just like yourself every morning. And that's really important. So thank you in advance for doing that. Yeah. That'll be in the show notes. You can go and click that and, and get started. It's a fantastic cause that is clearly uh, a, a dire need for a lot of people. Uh, Tiffany, do you have any homework you want to assign those who are listening, those folks who want to live in a better world, things to read, self-reflection, what have you? I mean, besides donating, especially now because of the demand that's going to come up after this whole uh, economic crisis really hits upon us. Um, I mean, I also just ask people again to look around, look at where they are and to, you know, be more vigilant about ways that you can meaningfully contribute because you don't have to donate to this. There are plenty of, <laughs> some people would say, you're a nonprofit person. You shouldn't say that. But like there are tons of problems that you could impact if you just kind of stepped outside of yourself for a moment and, you know, looked at things to do like I, I sent out the newsletter to our donors last month and I had at the bottom like six or seven things that people could do during this time and so you know those things were things like donating blood still um, you know there's a website that was listed to be able to find a food bank to donate to during this time um, and in that case you know those organizations they need money not you just dropping off random cans of things give them money for them to be able to choose what they want to buy for people um, you know, there's homeless shelters you can contribute to. Um, there's this thing called the crisis text line that you can volunteer to be a crisis counselor for over text messages. So there's a lot of different causes you can get involved in. It's just a matter of wanting to and like it's simply typing into Google, how can I help? And there's a lot of stuff that comes up. It's just a matter of will. Uh, Tiffany, Ashley Bell, you're talking to me in the middle of some of the strangest shit that any of us have lived through so far. Thank you for spending some time and, and hanging out and sharing so much of how you have accomplished what you've accomplished. I, I feel like there's so much to learn. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. And thank you for making time to listen, for imagining a future you want to live in, and for walking the path with us on the adventure to a better world. 
You're listening to The Motive by Elzion, kindly provided under license by the artists. Take care of yourself. I'll check in soon. You know it's not too late.